Hello and welcome to Kitchen Sessions. I'm Charlotte Hastings of Therapy Kitchen, here to explore how food means more than meets the belly. Each meal we enjoy, even the tea we love, will hold a little memory, a small story that could take us into the heart of who we are. As a therapist and a cookery teacher, I use our stories with food to take a natural journey into the inner world, finding a person's unique recipe for life to feed the soul. So to stir this pot of culinary enlightenment, each session I'll invite a guest to tell me about a dish they love, something special to them, maybe with their name on it, to let us know more about the person who makes it, and perhaps to know ourselves a little better too. I hope you'll enjoy these kitchen sessions, which are made in the spirit of what's perfectly possible rather than what's impossibly perfect. I am delighted that my guest today is Professor Jeremy Holmes, who was for 35 years consultant psychiatrist and medical psychotherapist at University College London and then in North Devon, where he is visiting professor at the University of Exeter. Jeremy lectures nationally and internationally and in 2009 was the recipient of the Bowlby Ainsworth Founders Award. He is the author of numerous papers and books that express with unique clarity his visionary reach across apparent art and science divides, illuminating the human condition. Of his great body of work, In Search of a Secure Base was key to my personal and professional development and I'm very much looking forward to reading The Brain Has a Mind of Its Own, Attachment, Neurobiology and the New Science of Psychotherapy where he explores the free energy principle through which we recreate our own reality according to pre-existing belief systems. Professor Peter Fonagy describes this work as one of the most valuable contributions to the field this century, a significant step in realising Freud's ambition of establishing a viable neuroscientific model for psychotherapy. Since music making, gardening, green politics and grandparenting are his current pursuits, I felt incredibly lucky that he found time for this kitchen session, which I hope you will enjoy as much as I have. As this interview reaches across the space and time of ourselves, I have chosen Max Richter's reimagining of Vivaldi's Four Seasons to introduce this special episode with one of my personal heroes, Professor Jeremy Holmes. Thank you. 
is such an important sort of component in Buddhism um, yeah. and um, sort of focusing on the breath and watching the breath and following the breath. But of course, we take breathing totally for granted <laughs> mm. <laughs> after that baby's first breath. We don't really think about it in everyday life. And I think sort of somehow um, we kind of don't realise that we're um, needing to eat all the time and that the life revolves hugely around the need to eat and we would die if we didn't eat. And um, um, I suppose, again, if you live in a sort of a rural area like we do and we've got hens, so you're sort of feeding your hens, um, you sort of realise that, uh, you know, a huge amount of their biology is all about getting food. Um, yeah. So um, rather like, so I think, I don't know what you read from it, I've only written one piece actually about spirituality and that was, you know, picking up on this idea that, um, uh, you know, it comes from inspiration and it's this idea that, um pre the scientific era um we didn't we, we we thought of the spirit as something invisible um and we didn't realize that the air actually is a material substance it's just it's a gas and therefore we don't actually sort of see it um what am i trying to say here? i'm trying to say that um well again i mean in a way rather like in buddhism one focuses on the breath so i suppose in the spiritual aspects of food, you're forced to think about food. And I suppose you take the sacrament, you know, uh, yeah. whatever it's called. Um, but, you know, most religions make a big deal out of food in one way or another. Um, you know, whether it's the, um, the Eucharist, um, you know, or sort of putting food aside for the Buddha, um, etc. you know, and the huge sort of Jewish eating rituals. So all these aspects seem to me possibly comparable to the idea of uh, mindful breathing. Yeah. Um, in that this absolute sort of basic biological phenomenon, which is well... Well, it's life itself, isn't it? Life itself depends on feeding. I mean, it depends on other things, but mm. <laughs> on food. Um and we sort of don't think about it, and it's kind of, in a way, one of the, I don't know what the purpose, if one's looking at it from an evolutionary point of view, but, but it's certainly the case that religions um, sort of uh, encourage one to mentalise the, the whole relationship between us and food. Sorry. Absolutely. Well, I, I mean, one of the big parts of my research that opened this area up was finding that, you know, our words company comes from the Latin companis. Mm. And so, you know, that is so embedded in who we are without realising the importance of connecting. But you can feel it when somebody comes to your house and the first thing you do is offer them something to eat. And um, I remember having my children and obviously that is you know how I was encouraged how I was shown that's what you do first you know you you bring the baby to the breast and you invite them into the world with with that holding as well so I was wondering um on that note obviously you're an attachment specialist and um how you see the relationship between food and love 
what's what's happening there with that first early relationship that first attachment to the carers well i'm afraid you know again i'm just sort of free association to what you're saying i mean the first thing that comes to mind and i think this sort of in a way to some extent takes me into my own biography mm. um well do you want me to talk about myself of course i, I do jeremy i'll give you a little bit of background i mean it's just yeah. that, um uh well the background is that my mother was an i'm I'm technically Jewish in that yeah. my mother was Jewish, my father wasn't. Um, she married out. Um, and my grandparents, whom I, met, whom I mentioned, lived in Hove. Yeah. Um, uh, my grandfather was in the food business. Okay. And he worked for Joe Lyons. I don't know if you remember Joe Lyons, but it was a big yeah. food, um, company. Yeah. Um, and he was quite senior in Joe Lyons. Um, and my mother was an only child. But, um, and her sort of culinary history is quite interesting in that she claims um, she got married pretty young while she was still at university, in fact, and she was kind of um, thrown out of university. She was allowed to be a married girl at university. Married, I think, probably equal having sex in those days in the 1930s. Yeah. Um, and... She claims, my father claims, that she didn't know how to boil an egg when she um, got married. So they'd always had a cook or something. Anyway, um, by the 1950s, when I started to become conscious, as it were, of the world, um, she, she, was, uh, she, she did work as a, as, a, as a social worker, actually, for the London County Council, as it then was known. But um, she was, the cookery was a massive thing in her life, and she was okay. known as a, a wonderful cook. Um, and she was hugely influenced by Elizabeth David, mm-hmm. uh, who sort of Wonderful. really transformed sort of liberal middle-class eating yeah. habits in the 1950s with her recipe books. And I've still got one at some of my mother's um, Elizabeth David, well-thumbed Elizabeth David paperbacks. Um, it's so imaginative, isn't it? Her uh, what was I going to say? Well, but also she, Elizabeth David sort of broke out from the sort of meat and two veg and she went to... Yeah. The Mediterranean, she went to France and Italy and uh, even Greece. Mm. Um, I'm trying to say, right, now I finally got there. <laughs> <laughs> the pathology um, is what came to mind when you said what you said, okay. uh, which is uh, I think um, my mother wasn't really at all psychologically minded. And her sort of response to any kind of distress was food. Um, okay. Um, so the pathology that I was thinking of. So on the one hand, you're saying um, food is absolutely integral to a loving relationship, whether it's uh, between parent and mother and baby, but also I think um, you know when you first meet the girl of your dreams, you take her out for a meal or something. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> and you know, sort of sharing food from the same plate, um, yeah. talking about food. Um, and obviously, in a way, there's a sort of, you know, if you kiss somebody, I mean, there's a sort of, as they say, yeah. exchange of bodily fluids. So sort of mm. sex and food are quite integrated to some extent, anyway. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so um, what am I trying to say here? So it's quite a, I think I'm trying to say it's quite a subtle thing. Yes. So on the one hand, um, love is expressed through food. 
mm. of course, and you know, sort of feeding my children. I mean, that's what is so awful in um, you know about poverty. Yeah. Um, you know, the first thing that mothers say is, I, "I can't put food on the table for my children." Yeah. Um, or or stress or war or trauma. Yeah. Um, but on the other hand, perhaps like everything. Um, I don't know how to express this because I haven't really sort of thought it through properly, but it's a little bit like the Winnicott notion of playfulness. Yeah. That if you're stuffing your children with food, then that's not good either, let's put it that way. So if you can't feed your children, or um, uh, then there's a kind of, you might say, a love deficit, but there's a kind of pathology in the other direction, let's say. Um, well, yes. I mean, the two things just really do need to come together. And I think, you know, in, in my uh, work is what I'm trying to do is use the food that we want to make, you know, enjoy the process, the playful process and the creative process of cooking. And I certainly enjoy eating that food. But actually what I'm looking for as a therapist is the process you know, of watching someone's process and what I can learn from that. But in my own life, what I've um, appreciated is how much I've learned from my grandmother's cooking and what that actually meant to me, you know, when she spent a long time making a tomato soup one time with, you know, taking all of the pips out and all of the skin off from tomatoes that she'd grown herself. And I tasted that. And in that moment, it was, you know, I can really remember everything about that moment of tasting this soup that she'd made. And I've realised that that's fed into my work now. And that's the thing that's continued and in the same way you know as you're talking about your mother and you know what you now as a psychiatrist have understood maybe something about what was happening for your mum of feeding with love but we need somehow those two things to come together and at the moment it feels that we're very much focused on the concrete food and, and just again in my reaction to that immediately made me think about when we um got interested in um Tichnad Han Buddhism. Yeah. Um, and I think one of the things we or I certainly sort of learned from that was sort of mindful eating. And yeah. mindful eating entails thinking about where that food came from. Yeah. Um, you know, you're sitting with this plate of food, you know, it might be something very simple, you know, a bowl of spaghetti or something. But you know, someone's grown that durum wheat, um, those tomatoes have been picked probably by very badly paid uh, sort of migrant workers. So in a sense, you know, you're, what you were saying about your grandmother and the, the tomato soup um, sort of in a way made me think about that. that mm. Food is a kind of, um, every, every, everything we put in our mouth has a kind of history to it. Um, yes. And again, we, we sort of forget that. Um, I mean, you know, I mean that said, I think there is a, an increasing interest in that sort of thing. And it's highly relevant, actually, to, um, you know, um, chlorine-washed chicken or whatever that people talk about in relation to um, uh, Brexit and how European standards are much higher than American standards and, um, and so on and so on. I mean, so there is a kind of public debate about the provenance of food that we eat. Yeah. Um, I think it's really good and important. Yeah, absolutely. And um, how it works out in an individual case... 
Well, uh, absolutely. And I mean, I think uh, you can't... I think you're absolutely right. I, I mean, again, I, I, interrupt me and sort of steer this conversation as you wish, but I, I, um, I'm what you make what you're saying so far made me think of something slightly different, which is this. I might have said this in my talk, but I always, uh, when I was working clinically, used to make a point of asking about a person's name, their Christian name, where it yeah. came from, mm. because that gives them. It, it gives you the history. Now, I don't believe it's possible to watch someone making a meal without them actually revealing their own sort of culinary history. In other words, it's going to be their grandmother, it's going to be their mother, it's going to be their father. Yeah. Of course, it's going to be them as well, but it's like a sort of uh, escalator or something or a ladder, you know, and you're standing yeah. on a rung and there are lots of rungs, which, you know, will be parental rungs um, primarily, but they will also be cultural rungs as well. Yeah. So um, I think, uh, you know... Um, it really takes... You know, the way my wife cooks, the way I cook, the way my son and daughter cook, they all sort of tell a story, if you like, about their, their history. Absolutely. But it's one that we can connect with in the moment, which I find, you know, really interesting that, you know, once you talk about food that's embodied, that's something that you're actually, or your senses are picking up as well, then somehow that, well, for me, it can be an easier way in than dreams or, or just straight talking where it can feel a bit more abstract. And you, you've also got that sense of security in your, your, your feeding yourself and you're doing an attachment task, as I see it, um, in providing that security, connection with others and connection with, with yourself. So I, I was wondering when you thought about this idea of kitchen therapy, that idea of security and how um, the kitchen might be a secure base and whether that would show up in your life at all, whether that would connect with your thinking that um, we've got this heart of a home or can be and uh, whether that provides a sense of ongoing security for somebody that secure base that we might talk about in a psychological sense well yes i mean I, again i immediately think about you know takeaways and mm. um sitting in front of the telly and watching and eating um uh so I don't know whether it's the case, but um, you might say sort of modern life means that that's not quite such a sort of powerful archetype, if you like, um, than it used to, as it used to be. And um, and also eating out. I mean, it is very cultural, isn't it? I mean, uh, you know, we, not Ros and I, hardly ever eat out. We yeah. prefer to leave it, you know, we will say we can we're paying for food that we could cook better ourselves. But, um, yes. um, but you know, if we go and stay with friends in Greece or something and eating out is just a normal part of life there. So, um, and, um, you know, I, I used to travel a lot to um, China and um, Hong Kong where people live in tiny little flats and the kitchen is um, almost non-existent and eating out is the norm. Yeah. So, 
Um, but again, obviously, the, 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 the restaurant or the cafe's kitchen is very important. And I've noticed that, you know, over the last 20, 30 years, you know, it's quite a trend towards sort of a visible kitchen in a cafe or something. So yeah. you're kind of in the, the heart of the... So, yes, I mean, I, I you know, heart of the home, absolutely. Um, and it's interesting, it is interesting because, um, as I mentioned, we... We're, we're selling our, well, we're trying to sell our house. We're under offer at the moment. Uh, and it's taken a long time to get here. And <clears throat> one of the problems with our house is that it hasn't got, although we live in a rural, in the middle of the country, it hasn't got a big country kitchen. Right. And the agent, the estate agents sort of say, you know, people move from the town um, and they want you know, a country kitchen. They want to sort of... Um, and um, so, obviously, again, that's a sort of archetype. It's a desire. It's a fantasy. You know, people say, well, we're going to move the country and then we're going to have this heart, which yeah. is the country. And, you know, we've got a perfectly good kitchen, which is fine. All our children and grandchildren have left home, obviously, so we're just the two of us, so it's fine. But um, so... So it comes very much the, the item, doesn't it, of what you know, this kitchen looks like and it, it becomes something that we can buy. And I think that's what I'm trying to work on, that it's that the... That we can buy, did you say? That we can wow. buy. Either we, you know, we can buy an amazing... Oh, kitchen. I quite agree. I'd love... Buy an idea. Kind of standard kitchen, you know, the sort of the island and the, yeah. the this, the that, you know. Um, yeah, I quite agree. I mean, I think... As opposed to the action that you put in and that, you know, that mindfulness that you, you bring wherever you are, whether you're out camping or, um, you know, in your own home, that it's, it's the love and intention that you bring to that process that, you know, you can't buy off a shelf, you know, and you, you can't, I mean, sometimes you can buy that in a restaurant, but when it has become so much the norm, that you know, going out is you know actually standard. I believe in um, parts of the world you've talked about, but in New York as well. You know, there just aren't food shops because people aren't cooking for themselves. And although we might connect with somebody who's cooked food for us in a restaurant, and you know, we keep businesses going and so on, but in lockdown, obviously, where we had to return to the kitchen, perhaps that did bring. Um, a greater sense of calmness and security to people that they are actually able to provide for themselves and their families. Yeah, absolutely. People are baking, baking, aren't they? Um, yeah. You know, we couldn't get hold of any bread, uh, flour for the first. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I was quite surprised. So take that takes us back to what you were saying about your grandfather being in Lions, and I was wondering whether that would. Um, lead us into the signature dish that you might have chosen for today, the, the dish that says something about you, Jeremy? I think the, the dishes that say things about me probably do all relate to my mother. It's uh -huh. uh, I mean, I'm, you know, just don't know why. I mean, I, I've, always, I've always cooked. Um, not, I'm not a you know, great cook, but um, it's never occurred to me not to, as my father didn't cook at all and, you know, didn't know how to cook really. Um, but um, uh, um, so I've taken for granted that I would cook alongside my, you know, whoever I was living with, um, flatmates or wives. 
Um, so it would be a sort of activity that you would join in and, uh, you know, like a play. Uh, I'd say, anyway, the current sort of system that Ros, my wife, and I have is that um, she cooks lunch and I cook supper. It's as simple okay. as that. I don't have to think about lunch. She doesn't have to think about supper. Um, exactly. And if we have friends or family, then we kind of do it together. And I do the main course and she usually does the pudding. Um, okay. So we've got a kind of system. Um, and that's sort of, in a way, how since I've been an adult, how I've always operated. And I did, I, I did sort of help. You know, I was pretty close to my mother, and you know, I definitely used to sort of. I learnt, you know, I don't know what, how to make an omelet, or you know, how to crack an egg. You know, those sorts of things from her. Yeah. Um, and she was happy to show you how to do that. I presume so. I mean, it didn't yeah. occur to me that she wasn't. If she was no. The way we operated um, in our family. I had two sisters. Um, uh, I'm the oldest. Um, I would say, so I'm not in any way a kind of show-off cook. Um, I'd say I'm a sort of work-a-day cook. Um, but if I think about sort of things that I would identify with, I mean, I know I showed that picture of the holler. Um, yeah which is always slightly complicated because my, one of my sons, Jacob, um, is uh, married to, uh, she's not an Orthodox Jewess at all, but she um, comes, she's a sort of um, atheistic um, kind of culturally Jewish person. They don't celebrate Christmas or anything like that, for instance. So um, I, I, can, I think I was trying to make it, when he met up with her, which wasn't all that long ago, Mm. five or six years ago I think I was trying to make a bit of a link with her um, and my mother used to make holler um, and buy holler as well um, so it was kind of uh, but uh, I can't say I make it very often um, but it sort of somehow it meant something to me and then sort of um, doing things with cabbage you know it's a sort of middle European you know I make a sort of red cabbage thing that Mm, um, delicious. from my mother, which is, again, a sort of, as I say, a kind of Middle European, um, uh, um, which is where her grandparents came from, <clears throat> um, my grandparents' parents, as it were. Anyway, so um, you could say my signature dish, which is a kind of um, phrase that I entirely associated, associate with MasterChef, um, <laughs> Uh, is uh, could be, could well be that holler, even though I don't make it very often. I don't know what my signature dish is. Um, we're we're pretty well well we're vegetarian, so I, I do make a lot of tortillas, which isn't at all Jewish. But we've got hens, so we have lots of eggs, um, yeah, and we sort of grow our own vegetables. So, um, what other signature dishes do I? Do, I don't know. I mean, Roz, Roz has her signature dish is pancakes. So whenever the grandchildren come, she makes pancakes. So one doesn't necessarily have to make one signature dish um, all the time for it to be a signature dish. As, as Absolutely. And I, I think we have. I have a sort. Of, you know, we have sort of standard dishes. Um, yeah. So I mean, I, because we're now vegetarian, have been for many years. But my mother used to make cockovin, um, and I think that. It goes back to Elizabeth David. Um, mm. So I used to I used to make cockerel. It's a nice, easy thing to cook. Um, is the bread that you talked about the holla bread? Is that easy to cook? 
Yeah, I mean, it's basically you just make dough with egg, that's all it is, and a bit of sugar. You know, it's a sort of sweet, eggy dough, and then you plait it in that lovely... Yeah, way. beautiful. Um, that's what it is, yeah. And is that something you remember your mum both made and bought? Yes, and, you know, she was, she was um, very... Uh, I mean, her Jewishness was very attenuated. Um, but, you know, again, she had that... Her grandmother her American grandmother, was um, orthodox, you know. Right. And, um, so, you know, they didn't turn on the electric light on the Sabbath, um, and etc. So my mother, and also I think she was, anyway, for whatever reason, it isn't really relevant to our conversation, she was, uh, to some extent, attenuated her Jewishness, but there were a few sort of residual aspects, both in her language, you know, if she was annoyed with us, you'd say, you're driving us, you're driving me my sugar. <laughs> a Jewish term for sort of, you're driving me mad. Um, and, um, and yes, she used to like to make holler. And she was, uh, she was definitely a bit of an earth mother. I mean, she loved making, you know, she liked to feed her family and her friends. And she was, you know, she was known among her friends for her dinners, you know, um, and giving dinner parties was a big thing to drive us children crazy because we were sort of banished to the nether regions of the house. But um, anyway. Well, I was, I was wondering when you said earlier that uh, your mother would deal with emotions with feeding you. Yes. Yes. And so I wondered what that might mean for you today or... or... Well, actually, I mean, sorry, I hope you don't mind. I mean, you can do what you like with this, but uh, my father used to tease her about this and I think she might have had a bit of an eating disorder. Okay. Um, her, her, I, I see if I can remember it, but he wrote a, um, what I've inherited from my father is the love of poetry and from my mother, the love of food, if you like. Um, but um, uh, my father wrote a little limerick about my mother. Uh, my mother's name is Marge, Marjorie. Okay. There was a young lady called Marge who thought she was excessively large. So she ate grass and hay till she nearly faded away that ridiculous young woman called Marge. Oh. So I think she was, she had a, probably had a bit of an eating disorder herself. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, there's a kind of tradition, which I suppose in a way I feel I both inherit and have sort of broken, which is you know, what I probably now call non-mentalising. So, you know, I don't think her, her parents had any conception of emotions or, or language for talking about the the yeah. um, and my mother wasn't that good as it either um, so uh, and I think she felt terribly trapped in this kind of uh, uh, quite in a way quite dysfunctional uh, she was an only child as I said Jewish yeah. family she did manage to escape uh, marrying my father um, I won't give you the whole, their whole history but anyway um, but it sounds as if they were very close in him being able to understand. I think they were a passionate love affair, and then, and basically, what happened was he very, very, very nearly died in the war, uh, and had, was a cripple, uh, was crippled by that for the rest of his life. And I think that was a sort of turned everything round. Right. Uh, I, I mean, the irony, which I was only thinking about only the other day, is that so I was the oldest child. I was sort of groomed, as it were, to not exactly step into his shoes, but I mean, because there were certain things he couldn't do, I right. was expected to do them. But the irony of it was, actually, I'm far more like my mother than I ever was like my father. So in a way, it didn't kind of work. So I wasn't a kind of second 
father, now uh, second husband to her. But anyway, let's go but back you, to you were, to you were both, perhaps, as you've said, you know. No, I, I have got, um, I've, you know, inherited various things from my, my father as well as from my own mother, definitely. But I'm more like my mother in my sort of personality and approach to life, I would say. Um, but it's which is not necessarily a good thing. I'm not necessarily proud of that, but, you know, that's just the fact. Well, absolutely. It's not about being proud. It's just about noticing, isn't it, mm. and being aware of, perhaps. Mm. And um, I'm just noticing that those steps you talked about, taking into a person the way they cook, is exactly what uh, you're showing up now, that, you know, whatever those different signature dishes might be, any of those avenues might tell us something more about who you are and well, how you become who you are. Let's give you another example. So my father, so I thought, what was my father's secret tradition? And he came from a pretty traditional sort of middle-class farming background, although he himself was actually a rebel and became an actor. But, you know, my father's signature dish would definitely be sort of roast beef and two potato- and potatoes, you know what I mean? Yeah. And I completely yes. don't identify with that at all. I identify with, you know, this more... Uh, I don't know what it would be, but more spicy, yes, more spicy kind of, um, and less stereotyped um, kind of cookery, which I would sort of put in the Jewish tradition. Yeah. One of my absolutely favourite books, which I'm expecting you've got it, um, is uh, Claudia, well, everything by Claudia Roden, I absolutely yeah. love. And there's a wonderful book, actually, I haven't got quite a the title, but it's a kind of history of the Jewish people and a cookery book at the same time. So it shows you about the Sephardi Jews and the Ashkenazis and their different culinary traditions and so on. Mm. Um, so, um, yeah, whereas my father was very much sort of, you know, the, his background, not himself, was this kind of jumble, you know, um, the, the... Very British. The roast beef and potatoes. You know, yes. And if you read Dickens or something like that, I mean, that's all they seem to eat in there. <laughs> a lump of meat. And, uh. <laughs> but it's bringing, it's bringing those two parts together. And I, I, so I just wonder whether um, that side of you, you know, the, uh, the Jewish maternal side of you, whether that uh, signature dish, if we just, cons- you know, give it the holla for the moment, does would that have a tune? Would that have a... Uh, yeah. If you want the music, which were, yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I haven't done it for years, but I, I know I once did do a sort of what are my desert island discs, but the things <laughs> I jotted down for your three were, uh, and I don't know why, but um, number one, so the holler accompaniment was the um, Countess's song from The Marriage of Figaro. Um, I don't even know The Marriage of Figaro, but, yeah. uh, and it's a very sad song. Mm. Um, because she's talking about the fact that her husband no longer loves her um, and, you know, she's a kind of, she's a countess, so she doesn't really have much to do with her children and she's feeling very, very alone and abandoned. And um, I have to say, (laughs) I mean, it's interesting because you may not guess it from just talking to me now because I feel quite animated, but um, I'm actually quite a sort of depressed person deep down. Um, So... um, Anyway, and that's a lovely, you know, I absolutely adore that song. And Roz and my wife and I both adore that song. So, anyway, that's what what came to mind.
connects uh you know I, mean, I guess it's quite hard to find the the reasons but that's so it, and if you want to make a connection which may be a little bit tendentious as one might say i yeah. suppose you know uh, it's, i don't know it's a great source of sadness to me but my parents both died fairly young right and there were sort of conversations with them that i never had yeah and, which I think now I would be able to have, have had. Mm. Rather like I sort of saying to my own children, I say, well, the moment I'm 80, you can ask me anything and I will give you a straight answer. Because there is this sort of parent-child taboo. There are certain things yeah. that, you know, you talk about your sex life with your children or theirs with you sort of thing. Yeah. But anyway, I think my mother probably, after my father's uh, injury, um, and she sort of nursed him back to life, and it's probably her greatest achievement, in fact. Right. Uh, he had a major head, head injury, and he was in a sort of head injury unit for nearly a year. Mm. Actually, she lived in Brighton with her parents while he was in Oxford in the unit in right. 1944, 1945. But I think she must have been lonely. Um, yeah. And so I think that... Um, that's one aspect. Um, I think that that's... Uh, just Mozart... You know, my probably don't need to say any more than the, the language Mozart says something both poignant and beautiful. Mm, mm. Um, how it connects up with Holler. Well, it's a midlife thing. I suppose she's in midlife. You know, she's, okay. she's about 40 probably. Um, and more um, late 30s. So... Um, there's a kind of poignancy about it, and I think, um, I mean, I'm making a big deal out of this, and I don't talk to... That's yeah, what you're supposed to I, Sorry? <laughs> That's what you're supposed to do for me. <laughs> um, I could say, you could say there's a kind of poignancy in 
Jewishness, you might say, mm. because of, I mean, um, of, of, of the lack of a home. Um, right. So, in other words, the way that the Jewish people sort of survived uh, as a persecuted minority, which of course nobody ever talks about now, all we talk about is all the other persecuted minorities, um, was through incredibly strong cultural um, formations. And yeah. clearly, food is a hugely important cultural formation. I mean, not that applies to any culture. So, you know, the first thing you you know, you kind of learn when you're a child is that the French like to eat frogs. Yeah, frogs' legs or snails. So you differentiate your own culture from other cultures by what you eat and what you don't eat. Absolutely, yeah. Um, I think it's all in Paul, Cloud Levi-Strauss, you know, sort of he started this idea but you know, as an anthropologist. But um, so in that sense, right, how do I link that up with... Uh, I think it's just there's such a poignant aria that. Um, and... Uh, and again, I mean, Mozart himself, you know, uh, was in this kind of middle, it was very difficult being a kind of freelance musician, you know, at the end of the um, 18th century. Um, and, um, you know, they, he, so in a way, uh, and his life actually wasn't that easy. I mean, it was a huge, huge success. No. He lost all his success and so on. Anyway, that's what came to mind. I mean, it could have been anything, actually, but uh, and it's not even... I mean, it would be on my Desert Island Discs list, but it probably wouldn't be, you know, I probably would have chosen some Bach or something like that. But it didn't actually, that's what came to my mind, so that's what I wrote down. Yeah, and I think that that idea of the homeland that you've brought up and how food can somehow resonate with that sense of security is what I'm really interested in. That that, oh, you Can know. I interrupt? I mean, when you talked about camping, I immediately thought, you know, just what came to mind was, you know, you go camping, what's the first thing you do? You build a fire. Yeah. And yeah, then you buy yeah, exactly. your sausages and open yeah. your tin of baked beans, you know. Yeah. But I mean, so you make a little home and the, you okay, you've got to put up a tent, so you've got to have shelter. And yeah. then the next thing after shelter is food. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, the two things are very much going together. Aren't they? You've got to have the shelter to protect the fire, you know, <laughs> and to eat in. So uh, I don't... Well, as they say, you can live without food for a month. You can live without water for about three days. Yes. I suppose you can live without shelter. I don't know how long you can live without shelter. It depends on the weather, obviously. But yeah. Anyway. But that kind of goes to that holding, the shelter and, and the food, that they really do go together. And possibly, you know, some people feel that it is that holding. And certainly for me, I would think that the love that is fed into the child as they are being fed is i'm not I, I don't i don't think you can say what's more important but certainly that's the thing that is going to be the ongoingness the sense of ongoingness and that sense of at-homeness that that bread perhaps represents that you know whatever is happening in life there is a sense of you know, a cultural ongoingness, a cultural connection that is beyond that piece of bread that you're going to eat, which is going to be gone. You know, that's that's going to be over and gone. But what it means is going to be is going to continue. Yeah, I mean, I think. Um, well, so what's coming to mind, listening to what you're saying there, is sort of to do with the concreteness of food. Yeah. I mean, um, sometimes my bread might be rather concrete, but 
that's just about another matter. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, food is a very, you know, so the, the mother, you know, I was thinking about my daughter-in-law feeding her baby. She's concrete, you know, he's beyond breastfeeding, but she, he's, you know, she's putting food into his mouth. So it's a very concrete thing. But there's also something else going on there. Yeah. Um, sort of, um, which is inverted commas spiritual. I mean, she's feeding him love. She's feeding him connectedness. Um, her attention. And I think your her attention, exactly. And as you, as you quite rightly put, companionship. Yes. Yeah, she's alongside him, isn't she? So even though at the moment when you're feeding a, an infant, they it, it can look a little bit one-sided, but, of, you know, that the way that that is actually creating a mother as she's feeding that baby. So both people are becoming themselves in mm. that moment, mm. which I find... Um, really beautiful and something like the breath that can be overlooked you know we take it for granted that's what we're going to do but actually it has a huge amount of depth to it that's what i wanted to say so let's take put the breath there and food there and in a way they're both saying the same thing but in opposite ways so with the breath you can't see it so we think of it as spiritual but actually it is physical and if we didn't breathe we would die yeah with bread as it were you can see it yes um but actually it's spiritual in the sense because actually that bread represents love yeah oh that that's brilliant thank you so much i I was wondering when what the role of actual cooking i know you've talked about how it's organized in your house um but given that we we're doing this concrete activity but as um a kitchen therapist i'm interested in the actual process of that and i wondered whether on that note whether you could tell me what the role of cooking what what it means to you or if any part of this conversation has opened that up at all thinking about how your mother cooked um, how your father didn't, but had ideas about cooking and certainly had ideas about food. I wonder what the actual process of cooking, maybe in a therapeutic sense, might mean for you, Jeremy. Well, okay, two or three things there. One is very specific, where in our house we have an agar, yep. oil fired agar, and we have an electric cooker, and we turn That's a great off the kitchen. So we turn off the agar in the summer okay. um, because the kitchen gets too hot. Yeah. And also we're burning oil, which, of course, is not a good thing to do. Um, the agar is a much nicer thing to cook on than an electric cooker, we yeah. find, or I find, because it's kind of there all the time. Yeah. So it's a bit like a mother who's ever available. No. Yes, um, yeah. <laughs> and I sort of understand and know the Arga, and we have a good relationship because yes. I don't know about Argus, but it's got a, you know, a hot plate and a, 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 a cool plate and a hot oven and a cool yeah. oven, and I can sort of use them. And um, I know how to work it. Um, yeah. And also there are no knobs, you know. I mean, it's just, um, it's all, you know, uh, um, it kind of, you don't have to manipulate it in any way. Right. Um, you have yeah. to turn things down and move it from a hot plate to the cool plate or back in. Anyway, so that's one aspect. Um, when um, people come to stay, mm. I do like them to come and 
chat to me in the kitchen while I'm making supper. I mean, oh, that's, lovely. That's a very nice moment. And, yeah. you know, they might have a glass of wine or something while they're sitting there. Um, and, you know, what you were saying about cooking, I mean, versus sort of talking therapy, pure talking therapy, I mean, actually, I've not in any way wanted to knock what you're doing because I think it's fascinating. But I think any kind of joint activity, you know, so it could be walking um, or driving, mm. um, or even making, you know, doing some carpentry or something. Mm. All these things, sort of in a funny kind of way, sometimes for some people, especially adolescents or people who are possibly, let's say, a bit psychotic or something, it's a lot easier to sort of talk while you're doing something else. You don't have Absolutely. to upfront it quite so much. Yeah. Um, uh, my sort of pattern of cooking is actually to have the radio on. Um, yes. So I just, um, you know, most of the time, Ros is doing something else, and I'm in the kitchen making supper and listening to Radio 3 or Radio 4, and I find that very soothing and... Um, Companioning. Yeah, and as I say, I'm not a sort of mega cook. I mean, I don't really like to spend more than half an hour cooking any, any meal, you know, because yeah, there are things to be done. So... Um, does that answer your question about the pattern of the kitchen and cooking, or maybe it doesn't? No, absolutely. Uh, I, uh, plus the fact, um, here's a little marital issue. Um, I always like to wash up as I cook, so that when I've made supper, I don't like to leave a mess behind. Um, um, I won't say more. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm completely people, relating to your wife's some people think that is approach. Let's put it that way. <laughs> Um, and so if you were cooking, I really, I'm alongside you. I like to listen to a podcast or something that I want to catch up on or possibly silence, but sometimes I like to cook to music. I, I just wondered, I mean, maybe it would be, you know, just what happens to be on the radio, but I wondered whether if there was a tune that you would cook to, what that would be. Oh, well, I mean, that's number two, isn't it? No, yeah. it isn't really like that. I listen to whatever is on. And in a way, I don't like my absolute favourite music to be on because um, I like to concentrate on music and in a way rather than just having it in the background. Sure. Um, I mean, I, I don't know why I put down anything from The Messiah. Um, yeah. um, and... Um, well, it brings that... Oh, I, mean, I very much associate Handel with my current... with Ros, my present wife, um, and she sort of introduced me. I mean, I was... Thought Handel was a bit pop before when I was younger. Um, so, um, and I do adore Messiah, I adore everything about Handel actually. So, you know, I'd be very happy to be listening to Messiah in the background, let's put it that way.
Well, that's perfect because it is that spiritual process that we are involved in with cooking. It's more than just making a meal. Um, and so that's, a, that's, that's great. <laughs> I'm really glad that you've well, chosen. Yes, or it's, yeah, I was going to say, which is not only repeating what you're saying, really, but it's like multidimensional. Yes. So, you know, as you say, there's a kind of very physical, we've got to have some food, we're hungry, and yeah. we need to eat to live. But also um, there's this sort of other dimension um, of that is expressed through through music and I suppose especially through sort of uplifting music, I suppose you could say the messiahs. Mm. Well, the thing about um, music and the reason I've put it together in this podcast that I'm making is that it is uniquely human as far as we know. I mean, I, I know that there's all sorts of beautiful sounds that animals make, but to specifically make music is a uniquely human thing to do and as is actual cooking with fire is okay i quite agree i mean i think that's fascinating and i my sort of theory about music one aspect of music for me is um to do with time yes that we're actually caught up in time completely just like breathing and eating we're completely unaware of the fact that you know by the end of this conversation both of us will be one hour later than nearer to our graves than we were at the beginning of the conversation. So <laughs> time is pushing us all the time. Mm-hmm. At my age, you're more aware of that than you will be. But, um, and my idea is that um, music sort of captures time and makes it mm. our servant rather than our master. Um, yes. And you could say the same, you know, uh, um, of cookery. I mean, obviously, one of the great cookery, uh, you know, if you if you watch our, you know, if you watch your hens, they're foraging all day long. They have to yeah. forage all day long. That's all right. Sheep in the fields. Um, mm-hmm. And the thing about fire, as you say, is that it extends the range of what we can eat. But I think it also means we have to spend less time foraging. Yeah. Um, and that means we've got more time for other things, That's such true. as uh, culture. Yes. Uh, or creating cultures and um so how did i get yeah. to that from what you said but it, it was an extension of what you said anyway well i think the fascinating thing about that i mean i'd like to kind of come back to what you're saying there really but um the fascinating well, i mean i'm quite aware of time you know okay uh, uh, at that point got another 10 minutes or so is that all right i hope that's all right. absolutely perfect yeah. yes um yeah, so, you know, the food and the music do connect us right across time. And as you said, uh, we have more time because we cook for our imaginations to develop. And I'm really interested in your idea of the therapeutic imagination and how that connects with literature. And, um, yeah, the therapeutic imagination that we that we need. And so... Just to, I mean, there's so much in there that I'd like to explore with you. But just on, on this note, if this dish was to have a character, if we were to give them, I don't know if it's necessarily an archetype, but a type of character, I wonder whether that would be possible in this, in this moment so that it's not someone that's attached to. I think I understand your question. I'm going to tell you a little joke, which was that we were on holiday with some friends years and years ago, and 
all sitting around with the children, etc. And then it was sort of something like, uh, if I was an animal, what animal would I be? Yeah. And everyone said, oh, I'd be a, a dolphin, or I'd be a jaguar. Yeah. And uh, I mean, this is typical of me, really. I said, well, I'd be a dung beetle. I gave a case, you know, the case for dung beetles, which is that they sort of, they're incredibly important in ecology, they work mm. hard, they can push things bigger than themselves, etc., etc. Mm. You know, mm. okay, I've never been allowed to forget that. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I made, I made to sort of, you know, Mr. Dung Beetle. Sort of yeah. <laughs> anyway, that's, so you're saying if this signature dish was a person, what sort of person would it be? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So that we can kind of understand what they mean to you and, yeah, just explore right. that. Okay, I'm just telling you what comes to mind. Mm-hmm. I have done a, I have, you know, you wanted a third bit of music, which I have jotted down. But what came to mind when you said that just then was... Medusa, the collar is plaited, and she has these plaited locks. Mm. And uh, the Medusa sort of archetype, I think, was very, you know, I used to think about it a lot as a child, you know, this idea of Perseus, who manages to um, outface the Medusa by not looking at her, but by having her reflection in his shield, and that enabled him to uh, uh, sort of uh, um, overcome her and not be petrified or turn to stone. So I don't quite know how that figures exactly, but I think it, again, perhaps goes back to this idea at a cultural level of Judaism that, you know, it's a persecuted minority, you know, six million are going to end up in gas chambers, but the culture survives. Yeah. And in a way, the reflection in the shield is a kind of cultural thing. So, mm-hmm. you know, the music survives, the food survives, the literature survives, and... Um, Within the person... Now, how that applies to me... Well, I, I mean, I... I I am a bit of an outsider, mm-hmm. and so, but I think I've sort of managed to fly my own flag in my outsiderish way. I don't yeah. know that I can't say more than that. Which is a little bit like Medusa, and also, you know, the snake is a healing uh, as well as a frightening. You know, it uh, has Asclepius. Well, also, you're absolutely right because the symbol of, of medicine, and it's been terribly important to me to mm-hmm. be a doctor. Um, and I've always loved my profession, yeah. um, is the Escalapian snakes intertwined yeah. around a staff. So, yes, I hadn't thought of that, but you're absolutely... Thank you for saying that, because that really puts a more positive spin on it. <laughs> well, it's interesting. I've looked into Medusa a lot because of that. You know, as, as all the those archetypes, you know, they are a mixture. Yeah, and, and what you've described about your mother and her perhaps relationship with food, as well as the way she gave it, has has both aspects in there. No, I think you're right. And of course, you know, in a way, it's the Kleinian depressive position idea. Yeah. But also, I think just very personally, I'm not all bad, but I am quite bad in some ways. Um, you know, and so that intertwinedness um, mm-hmm. of good and bad is quite important to me. It is. Uh, and, yeah. it, and it's that golden colour on the image that you sent. Um, 
it's that golden colour, which I think, you know, it's the colour of alchemy, the mixture and, of those Yes, things. and again, I think what, what if I have made a contribution in a very, very minor way, I think it is um, bringing together sort mm. of somewhat disparate things. You know, so um, I always used to joke when I was with my psychiatrist, you know, I'm a psychiatrist, but I'm also yeah. a psychotherapist. So when I was with, when I'm with psychotherapists, I'm always sort of saying, well, actually, you don't really understand psychiatry. And I, with my psychiatrist friends, I'd say, oh, you don't really understand psychotherapy. But, you know, sort of bringing together art and science. My very, I think it was my very first book was called Between Art and Science. Um, yes. And that has been my mission in life, in a way. And, and the two things that I am passionate about, because I absolutely adore science, but I also adore poetry and music, and to an extent art, although I'm not very busy and that actually, I mean, on a much less kind of grand scale, is very much what I'm doing in my work of bringing my love of cooking and food together with my love of therapy and, in fact, literature and, and um, theatre as well. So I, I've got all of those things here together. So on the subject of that last tune that you have got, I was wondering whether, yeah, it, it is a tune to sing us out with but it's also I wondered whether it had any connection with what this process of thinking about kitchen therapy about what food means to you what I'm afraid, that... I mean again it was you know I did it sort of free associate spontaneously what came to mind was Bob Dylan's girl from the north country um Lovely. and um again it's a very sad song it's a nostalgic song it's rather um um, could almost say mawkish. I mean, um, I, I associate it very much with my 20s. Um, so it's got that sort of um, <clears throat> um, harking back quality, yeah. which I suppose you could say is true of the, the hollow bread, which is harking back to my mother who you know, died 30 or more years ago. Well, um, to be a bit systemic about it, we could reframe, and it's about connecting to the past, isn't it? Yes, it's about connecting <laughs> to the past. Um, so, uh, but, and actually also the present, because as you know, Bob Dylan's just had a, a bestseller, best-selling uh, hit um, <laughs> uh, record. I haven't got it yet, but I probably will get it. If you're travelling to the North Country Fair Where the winds hit heavy On the borderline Remember me To one who lives there For she once was A true love of mine See for me that her hair's hanging down It curls and falls all down her breast See for me that her hair's hanging down That's the way I remember her bed if you go when the snowflakes fall, when the rivers freeze 
Lisey for me if she's wearing a coat so warm to keep her from the howling wind. If you're traveling in the north, so um, he's st- he's still alive um, and creating Very much that's so. a bit of an inspiration you might say to us oldies because you know, i'm i think he's about one year older than me so there we are yeah yeah he, it, that brings us um towards the end in a really beautiful way that as you say it's kind of ongoing because whatever music he's made will live on well past him as have these you know the parts of the conversation come, have taken us across time and uh, and brought us to the end of time i just like That's to kind of you. i mean what you, sorry go on no no go on go on what were you gonna say um well i just wanted to thank you for your time today but also for what your work has meant to me and where you've said about you know a minor contribution for me actually has been a key contribution in developing these ideas and and um, being able to access them, actually. So, I, you know, a lot of therapeutic writing I find quite complex to decipher. And That's really I'm proud of anything. It's the fact that somehow, I, and I think I must have inherited this from both my parents in different ways, I, I like to think that I uh, make things clear. Don't you I do. Exactly. <laughs> Uh, and obviously at the risk of oversimplification but not entirely um, oversimplifying Um, yeah because I always feel I've I've, I've, you know in a way I've um, you know uh, I'm not really an original thinker but I've sort of made other people's ideas um, as crystal clear as I possibly can you know like so John Bowlby um, Mm. And now, this moment, my latest book is uh, trying to make the ideas of Carl Friston um, accessible to people. So uh, I see myself as a kind of transition um, person, you know, between the original thinkers and, you know, ordinary people. Well, in the same way that, you know, that is what a recipe is, isn't it? You know, it comes from the past and then we make it something in the present. And I don't know that any of us are original thinkers in a pure sense in that way, because we're all building on one another. I mean, another thing that occurs to me about this, uh, you know, I'm very much very amateur, I mean, but I am, I do, music plays quite a big part of my life and I play a number of instruments. And in a way, a recipe is a bit like... um, music on a page yeah uh, yes so you sort of have to bring that you have to bring that to life and yes. it's quite interesting sorry this is you know probably not relevant to our conversation i think it's completely you know, I've the people work with recipes in different ways yeah. and um you know i virtually never follow a recipe to the letter no um, i probably did when i was in my 20s mm. but you know you sort of in a way say oh i know how to fry an onion sort of thing and I do it my way mm. um, or I don't know make a bechamel sauce or something so um, I mean, it is quite interesting that that you sort of whereas uh, my brother-in-law who I'm very very fond of you know he will follow his recipe absolutely to the letter you know? um, so it, it's sort of an expression I think it's in, just interesting the way people do that 
Um, yeah, absolutely. And I think to some extent the same is true of the musical score. You know, mm. some people will be very, very, you know, what exactly did is the right tempo to play this in? What did Beethoven say? It says crotchet run 29, well, we better do crotchet run 29, whereas I'd be more likely to say, let's just play it as best we can. Or, yeah. <laughs> And that would be exactly my approach to cooking and, and what I find therapeutic about it, to be playful and to be bring your unique self to it and what you've got in that moment because you don't know how strong that garlic is. You know, it, you don't know how much to add because you might need more at that particular time or have less or whatever. So um, that, that feels like a, a perfect note to end on and thank you very much for uniting oh, with it. Do keep me, uh, you know, is this going to turn into a book or what's going to happen to all this? Um, so this will be a podcast that uh, stands alone as, you know, a group of podcasts that I'm making. And gradually I'm putting a book together about kitchen therapy, a, a way of cooking that is therapeutic, that brings therapy into people's own homes. And... Um, and as you know, contributing to Linda Cundy's book on food and attachment so that we really start to develop these ideas that food is more than what's on the plate, really. And so would you, will you send me the podcast? Of course I will, yes. Thank you I, Thank I've you. really enjoyed this conversation. I, I didn't know that I was going to enjoy it as much as I have. Let's put it that way. <laughs> I'm so... So, so thank you. May, you know, who knows? We may bump into each other again sometime. I have, you, have you seen my latest book? I mean, it's um, it's. Uh, um, yes, I have. I have seen it. Not easy going, I have to say. This one chapter of it isn't easy going, um, but you know, I'm quite proud, I'm quite pleased with it. So, it, oh, you know, perfect. Those. I think it fits very much with what I'm doing, and. Um, I, I do find your reading, as I said, you know, really accessible, but also really inspiring. So thank you very much. Please enjoy the rest of your day. Good luck, thank you, with your project, which is a really interesting project. Thank you Bye. very much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I wonder if this conversation has stirred thoughts about your own signature dish, the story it tells and messages for life it gives you. Do drop me a line and leave a comment with your food for thought kitchen reflections at www.therapykitchen.co.uk or here on the SoundCloud site where you can find out more about me and what I do. Thank you so much for being in the conversation today and I'll be back shortly with a new guest on Kitchen Sessions. <laughs>